If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Jonah and chapter 1. Jonah and chapter 1. We began uh, our study through uh, Jonah last week. If you missed that, I encourage you to uh, go on our website, go on our Facebook, if you podcast, you could grab that too, and uh, listen to that. Uh, sets up the whole book that we will be in for uh, at least the rest of January. Uh, we read verses 1 through 3 last week, and so uh, we're going to be in 4 through 16 today, okay? Jonah 1, 4 through 16. If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, uh, you can feel free to go grab one on the welcome desk right now. Uh, I won't be offended thinking you're stomping out because of me. Uh, go grab one of those. If you, uh, you know, don't want to get up and go get one now, you can grab one on your way out, okay? Um, there are two designs there. Uh, they're the same text. Everything's the same except for uh, the designs, the green one and the black one that you can choose from, and those are $4 American, okay? Jonah 1 uh, and chapter, jo- Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 through 16. Let's go ahead and read this together. I'm assuming you're there. Uh, it'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Let's go ahead and read this. Holy Spirit says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths in all of our hearts. In 1941, at the Polo Grounds, when crack was in high school, in 1941, uh, at the Polo Grounds in New York, light, light heavyweight boxer Billy Kahn squared off with Joe Lewis, a famous boxing champion who weighed 25 pounds more than Kahn did at the time. Well, because of Kahn's lightweight and speed, he was able to evade Lewis and, and hang with the champ for 12 rounds before he decided he would try to uh, prove that he could go punch for punch with Lewis. Uh, this proved to be unwise, as he could not, in fact, hold his own, and Khan was subsequently knocked out in the 13th round. Well, after World War II in 1946, Khan and Lewis were set for a rematch. 
Uh, Con was still much lighter than Lewis, and it would appear that Con had learned his lesson and would return to his tactic of evasion rather than trying to match Lewis punch for punch. Before the fight, a reporter asked Lewis, how then do you intend on contending with Con's quickness? To which Lewis responded with a phrase that had become commonplace in the English language. Lewis said, he can run, but he can't hide. And Lewis was right. This time, Khan was dispatched by Lewis in eight rounds. Khan could run, but he could not hide. Last week, we began our study of the book of Jonah and explored the first three verses. And in those three verses, we saw the abrupt message of the Lord come to the prophet named Jonah, who was thus told to go to the important, wicked, pagan Assyrian city called Nineveh and speak against it, uh, which would not only confront the city concerning its evil, but would also give it an opportunity to repent and turn to God. Well, Jonah, being the good patriotic Israelite that he was, decided that this was a bad idea, and he wanted no part of it. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted to see them repent. Uh, He didn't like the idea of God's grace being extended to people like that, so he fled to the port city of Joppa. And in Joppa, he found a ship that was going to Tarshish, which sounded like a great place for him to flee from his assignment. Well, Tarshish was ideal to Jonah because it was a place where Yahweh wasn't known, a place at the end of the world in the Israelite minds, and a place that was the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Perhaps Jonah could go there, and God would either abandon this plan to reach Nineveh or find some other hapless prophet to go instead. So in essence, God came to Jonah and said, go, and Jonah said, no, with his actions. But what Jonah's going to learn in this text that's before us. And what we're all going to learn as well is this. When it comes to God, you can run, but you can't hide. In this text, we see three characters and their interactions with one another. So this is what we'll do. We'll look at each character in order of appearance and see what lessons the Lord has for us through them, okay? So the first character, three characters, first one we encounter is God in verse 4. As we said last week, the true main character of the book is not Jonah, uh, neither is it uh, the people of Nineveh, nor is it the sailors, nor the great fish. The main character from start to finish is who? God. This book teaches us important truths about God's character, even as we see lessons about ourselves and our own propensity to be just like Jonah. And what do we see in verse 4? See it again? As Jonah runs to Joppa and catches this ship and they start sailing, what does God do? He hurled a great wind upon the sea. What did this do? It caused the storm, which caused the ship to be in danger of breaking up and sinking. In other words, this ship that Jonah intends to use in order to flee from the presence of the Lord is not going to get very far. There is to be no doubt that this storm is coming from the hand of Yahweh. It isn't as if Jonah right, just happened to pick a bad day for travel. Have you ever done that? And just pick a bad day for travel. It isn't that he forgot to check the weather app on his phone before he left his house. It isn't as if it was just a bad time of year to be traveling on the sea. No, we're told that the Lord hurled or threw a great wind which caused the storm. Now this word, word hurled is the same one that will be used in this chapter for the sailors throwing cargo off the ship. It will be used for the sailors throwing Jonah overboard in verse 15. Just as one would throw a spear or a ball, God threw a wind to cause a storm. Now this is no average storm, my friends. 
This is a storm of epic proportions, and there are a few clues, I'm sure you saw, that stresses severity. For one, the author personifies the ship. He talks about the ship like it's alive, like it's a person, like it has feelings. We're told, as for the ship, it threatened to burst apart. So a ship made for the rough waters of the sea should not break apart, right? But it's threatening to do so in this fierce storm. Now, of course, the biggest clue, the second one concerning the severity of the storm, is the sailor's reaction. Yes? What does it say in verse 5? The sailors were afraid, and each one cried out to his God, and they started to do what with the cargo? Throw it overboard to lighten the load in hopes that the ship would be lighter and the crashing waves wouldn't come in and fill the boat. Now, some of you have been on cruises or maybe boat tours or things like this, yes? Imagine if you were on a cruise, okay? Even if you've never been on one, just pick yourself on a cruise and the weather turned bad and it started to storm. And one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to look at the crew and see how they respond. If they're cool and they're calm and they're collected, you'd probably be comforted by this. Yes, they do this all the time. They probably think that, that if this isn't a big deal to them, uh, I will get back to my lobster buffet or whatever people do on cruise ships, right? Now, if you look at the crew and they have these worried looks on their face and beads of sweat starting to form on their brow and they're whispering to each other and they're running frantically and then they start crying out and then you see them hit their knees and start praying and then they start running around grabbing umbrellas and chairs and chucking them over the side and furniture and couches. How will you react? You'll think, this is an especially bad storm, right? We're probably going to die. And maybe I should start praying as well. Maybe you, you even start grabbing furniture, right? And you're chucking it overboard too. The author here tells us these professional sailors are panicking and afraid to the point that they're hitting their knees and praying, followed by hurling cargo into the sea. The storm is probably the worst they've ever seen, and they're flipping out. But we have to ask, why did God do this? Why? Why did he send this frightful storm? Why not just let Jonah flee? If he wants to rebel, let him rebel. Jonah wants to flee from the Lord. He doesn't want to do what the Lord told him. Why not just let him go? And what about the sailors? Why are they caught in the middle? But what have they done to deserve this? Now, here's why, and this is the first major lesson I want you to see, which is this. This is an important one for the book of Jonah. God relentlessly pursues sinners. That's what I want you to see. The first major lesson. God relentlessly pursues sinners. The book of Jonah, as someone once said, is probably the best known yet least understood book in the Bible. And proof may be here in our asking why God sent the storm. We may think, for example, that God hurled this storm in order to punish Jonah. To, to force his hand, to confine him, to make him go to, to Nineveh. We may think something similar about his time in the belly of the fish, but is that why God did it? Is, he, is God this petulant deity who throws tantrums like a toddler whose playmates refuse to play the game by their rules? Uh, of course he isn't, which is why we must see the storm not so much as a punishment, but as a sign that God will not let sinners go down to the abyss. 
without a fight. God sends a storm because he doesn't want Jonah to be cast into a life of running from God and a life of disobedience because that's a life of misery. God knows this. So God sends the storm because he intends to pursue Jonah, to bring him back in, to get him to snap out of this foolishness flight. This is how God relates to sinners. God's love compels him to pursue rebels like Jonah. God loves Jonah in such a way that he refuses to let Jonah simply go and continue his downward trajectory. God desires Jonah, even as Jonah has fled from God's presence and is determined to disobey his creator. Even if Jonah, do you get this? Do you see this? Do you see the radical nature and love of God? Even if Jonah doesn't want God in this moment, God still wants him. We can ask similarly, why did God decide to have a prophet go to Nineveh and preach against it and offer it a chance to repent in the first place? They're a wicked people. We saw last week, they delight in idolatry. They delight in cruelty. They have bodies stacked up to where you're uh, tripping over them. They deserve to be overthrown and vanquished and destroyed. That's what they've earned. So why would God send one of his prophets to them and give them a shot at repentance? Because God relentlessly pursues sinners. We say, Nineveh didn't deserve that kind of pursuit, did they? Of course they didn't. Jonah didn't deserve this kind of pursuit. Both were casting off God and going their own disobedient and wicked ways. What Jonah deserves, yes, is to be crushed under God's holy boot for his running and his disobedience. That's what he deserves. That's what he earns. But what? God relentlessly does what? Pursues sinners. He offers grace to the graceless and mercy to rebels. That's who he is. I think about the sailors. We look at them with pity. I do when I first read it. They seem to mean well, right? And they're seemingly caught in the middle of all this. Why do they have to endure the storm and the fear that comes with it? Well, they aren't innocent, are they? They are pagans, yes? crying out to all kinds of false gods. They don't worship Yahweh. They follow multiple phony deities, and they're, they're praying in hopes that maybe one of them will awaken from their slumber and do something about this predicament. So are they innocent? They know less than Jonah are running from God and serving idols in their disobedience. But what does the storm do? Don't you see? What does this being caught in the middle of God and Jonah do? It causes them to know who Yahweh is, doesn't it? And to know that he is the supreme God over all things. To the point that in verse 16, look at verse 16. They are back to dry land and they are offering sacrifices to the one true God. Would they have done that without this incident? God relentlessly pursues sinners like Jonah, like pagan sailors, like a wicked vile city, like you and like me. You know, I often hear people say, maybe you've heard this before, that they found God. Have you ever heard that before? Usually someone who's had a rough go of it says what turned it around was they found God. But this is wrong. We don't find God. We aren't even looking for him. C.S. Lewis wrote after his reluctant conversion from agnosticism, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. We aren't looking for God. He finds 
us. He is the pursuer. We are the Jonahs fleeing from his presence. We are the sailors looking to idols to save us. We are the Ninevites languishing in sin and thinking this is how one prospers and lives a vivacious and free life. We can't find God, and we know this, and he knows this. So he comes and gets us. If we are rescued, we get no credit for the rescue. From start to finish, salvation is a work of God. Someone who understood this was Francis Thompson. I'm not sure if that name is familiar to you. Thompson failed at pretty much everything he tried. Everything. He lived on the streets of London in the 1800s. For three years, he lived on the streets. He did work wherever he could find it to, in order to survive. He, he slept by the River Thames. He was addicted to opium to the point that people said, if you look for him and you couldn't find him, just go to the opium den. He'll be there eventually. But it was when Thompson was at his lowest that the gospel became clearest, and he converted. It was then that he penned one of the greatest poems of the last several centuries. I want you to write this title down, and I want you to look it up when you get home, okay? It's called The Hound of Heaven, a poem by Francis Thompson. And Thompson, in this poem, after his conversion, he describes God as one who, who had pursued him and chased him until he seized him. He said he fled and he fled and he fled. He hid and he ran some more. But God, like a hound giving chase, pursued and showed Thompson the emptiness of life outside of Christ. And he offered him his hand. Well, reflecting on this poem, which again, I encourage you to look up later and read, this fellow, J.F.X. O'Connor, said this. He said of the hound of heaven, the name is strange. It startles one at first. It's so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning, is, the meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love away from God it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. God is a God so full of grace and mercy and love that he would chase wayward rebels. And this is good news, isn't it? Because if he did not do that, we'd be hopelessly lost wouldn't we? And forever. And so would Jonah, and so would the sailors, and so would Nineveh. But now the second lesson I want you to see about God here is that sometimes things that look like judgment are actually mercies. Let me say that again. Sometimes things that look like judgments are actually mercies. This storm here sure looks like a judgment, doesn't it? But it isn't. It's a mercy from God to Jonah. And sometimes in your life, God will use things that we don't like in order to apprehend you back to him. Now, this isn't to say all unpleasant things in our lives are a result of our disobedience and running from God. Sometimes they are. But it is to say that God uses difficult circumstances in order for us to lean on him, to go to him, to return to him, to run to him. But if we believe in the sovereignty and providence of God in the way that the Bible talks about, we must believe that nothing happens that isn't either by his permission or his direction. 
He is both the hurler of the storm and the director of the dice. You see what happens when the sailors are trying to figure out who it is that angered this god of the sea to to cause such a fierce storm, and they cast lots, right, which is kind of like a dice roll. And it fell on who in verse verse 7? What a coincidence, right? Isn't it something that it happens to fall on Jonah? Of course it isn't coincidence. God directs even the falling of the dice. Donald Gray Barhouse said, man throws the dice, but it is God who makes the spots come up. Scripture testifies to this in Proverbs 16.33, which says the the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What's that tell us? That nothing in a world ruled by this God can happen by chance. Do you know that? There are no coincidences in this world. Everything happens under the watchful eye and hand of the Lord. Everything. And all of it is grace. Because all of it is for our good and towards his ends, which are purely good. We may not know always why things happen, but we can trust in God's wisdom. Sometimes bad things happen, yes? And sometimes bad people do bad things. And sometimes things happen that we can't even conceive of them having a good reason or turn out to have a good result. And sometimes life is confusing and seemingly unnecessarily hard. And this should drive us to madness if we were just an accident of exploding atoms just bumping around in a meaningless galaxy. But if the universe is sovereignly ruled with meticulous providence by an almighty God who loves rebels enough to pursue them, then we can rest in him. Yes? Even if we won't know what he's up to this side of eternity... John Piper once said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may make no sense to you. Or as Puritan John Flavel said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Everything from small and irritating inconveniences to major life-altering events are under the providence of a loving and wise God. And if their purpose isn't to return us home in our running from God, then their purpose at the very least is to grow us and teach us and mold us and drive us to Him. So when difficult circumstances come, which are inevitable, our choice is, you know, there's two choices, right? To flee from God or to flee, what? To God. Because trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. You will become better or worse. You will grow more bitter or more grateful, more independent or more dependent. But either way, they will not allow you to remain the same. So we know that God is sovereign. We know that he rules with meticulous providence. We know that he is good. We know that he lovingly pursues sinners. So let's continue by looking at our next character, okay? Our second character is actually several. The sailors. Let's consider the sailors for a moment. Now, we don't know much about them, do we? We don't know where they're from. We don't know their ethnicities. We don't know uh, where they came from. We don't know their names. But we should see ourselves in them in some respects. We're meant to see a contrast. I hope you saw it between them and our third character, which we'll talk about in a moment, Jonah. The sailors react to the storm with frenzy and hurried activity. They're afraid. 
They call out to idols. They throw things overboard, try to do whatever they can to make things better. They try religion. They try their own method to get out of this, while Jonah does what? Passively sleeps below deck. They couldn't get more different. The first instinct of the sailors is one that all people share, which is to cry out to God for rescue. Isn't that interesting that this is their first impulse? They cry out to the wrong gods, of course, but they cry out nonetheless. Isn't it interesting that this is the first thing that instinctively comes to our minds in distress? Surely, you are aware of what happened during Monday Night Football, yes, this past Monday? Uh, Unless you live under a rock um, or don't have a phone. In case you don't, all right? (laughs) During a routine play on Monday Night Football, 24-year-old Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin got up and then collapsed. Well, he had a cardiac event that was so severe that CPR was being performed on the field and an ambulance was driven onto the field to take him to a local Cincinnati hospital. Uh, if you watched it, it was heart-dropping, it was scary, right? A very frightening moment, and the game ended up being called off. Now, what's interesting was that everyone's first impulse was to pray. Players and coaches were praying on the field. If you're watching this, they would cut to the ESPN analysts and they would say, we all need to pray. You go on social media, almost every tweet and post said, we need to pray for Hamlin. People who weren't Christian were saying they were praying and then calling on other people to pray. Why? Because there is something wired into all of our hearts that knows we are helpless creatures dependent on our creator. But see, the problem with people now is the same problem that sailors had. What's the problem? That even though the impulse to pray is the right one, vague notions of a blessing deity won't do. Each of these sailors had a God they prayed to. Do you see what it says? They prayed each to his own God. They had this cornucopia of gods, and not one of them was the right one. You know, typically pagans during this time had three gods they would serve, three One was a personal God, one was the God of their family or clan, and one of their nation. And each of these gods ruled over some aspect of the world. So you'd have a God of crops, you'd have a God of fertility, a God of livestock, a God of this, and a God of that. What these sailors are trying to do, they're rolling the dice in some sense in hopes someone got to the right God. It was like having a bunch of phone numbers and trying each one in hopes that someone would pick up the phone, which God would answer. And we see this when, in what they say to Jonah, don't, don't, don't we? They, they're panicking and they're praying and they're chucking things off the boat. The captain sees Jonah they're just snoring away and he wakes him up and he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and what? Call out to your God. Maybe he'll give thought to us and we won't perish. You see what he did? He's thinking, well, our gods aren't working. Maybe this guy worships one that will pay attention and can do something about it. What they needed to hear is what Jonah tells them when they asked him all those questions in verse 8. They ask him, after the lot falls on him, what's your occupation, where are you from, what is your country, what people are you a part of? And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. In other words, Jonah says, I serve the God who made what? Everything. They needed to hear that. They needed to know their prayers to vague deities was as pointless as talking to a statue that one made themselves. They needed to know that there was a God and there was one. 
and he ruled over all things. There wasn't a God of the sea and another God that ruled the wind, another God that ruled the ships, another God that ruled sailors. There was and is one God who rules over all. Now, there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? The sailors are lost. Can we agree on that at the beginning here? But they're religious, aren't they? They have a little bit of religion. They have enough to know some deity is over the ocean, and their impulse is to pray when in a bind. The problem is a little religion, which is what they have, is not enough. Their religion is enough to petition a blessing deity in hopes that one will find favor with him in the moment, but it isn't enough to save, is it? Now, we look at these ancient pagans, we might see their their religion as quaint, right? Quaint, ignorant religion of the past. Surely, uh, us, us smart people in the future, we're, we're not like them. But are people much different today than they were then? That we are surrounded by people who have just a little religion. We're surrounded by people whose only interaction with God is when they pray before supper or when they need something from him like he's a cosmic genie in the bottle. We're surrounded by people who think they're Christian because they get teary-eyed during God Bless America at sporting events, but truly they worship the sport that's been interrupted by that song more than they do the God that they invoke casually and rarely. Many think a little religion is enough. As long as I'm good and sincere, God will certainly save me. You see what they're doing? You know, invoke the deeds of Jesus. As their security. They place it rather in the modicum of religion that they could squeeze out from time to time. What does that do though? If Christ isn't your life, what does an arm length attachment to him do for you? If you aren't pursuing a life of Christ centeredness, what is at the center? Because it's something, right? In, in the ninth letter of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, screw tape tells his nephew Wormwood. That's actually fine if his person that he's been assigned to is religious. Wormwood should just make sure he doesn't give himself too much to God, is what he says. He says it's fine if, if he is a Christian as long as he doesn't center his life on Jesus. He says, talk to him about moderation in all things. If you could at once get him to point of thinking that religion is all very well to a point, you could feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. We don't need just a little bit of religion. We need Jesus. And we need all of him. And he calls for all of us in return. There's nothing wrong with calling out to God in desperation. But what if such things are in the midst of a relationship that is ongoing and active with him? What if he isn't treated as a means to an end, but he is the end in itself? You see the difference, don't you? See, here's the thing about a little religion. It's just as damning as no religion at all. Because they're both self-salvation projects. But if there's anything this chapter makes clear, it's that the efforts of humans are futile. Everything humans try here fails. Only God succeeds in what he endeavors in this chapter. You see what the sailors do after praying? They start chucking things off the boat thinking that they could mitigate that disaster themselves. What happens though? The storm continues to rage. The ship continues to threaten to break up. I think we would be well within our bounds to spiritualize this picture like this. Human efforts to save oneself always fail. Only God can rescue wayward rebels. 
only God could save them because he's the one who sent the storm. (laughs) But again, our propensity, yours as well as mine, is to do what in salvation and in difficulties of life? To try everything else but God. Our first impulse may be to pray, but we tend not to be very patient with the answer from God, so we move along to our own solutions. Is that not true? So you're quiet because you know it. (laughs) Like D.A. Carson said, many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring the front doorbell and run away before anyone answers. We move to our own solutions, kind of like throwing stuff over the side of a boat. Kind of like trying to row back to land when you're in the middle of the worst storm you've ever experienced. We think, maybe I can come up with a solution. And what we're really doing is often saying, God, save me out of this situation, but while I wait to see what you will do, I will see if I can do it myself. Sometimes we don't see God at all. So confident, so self-sufficient, so independent, so afraid to be seen as weak and needy are we that we circumvent God altogether. But why wouldn't we seek the God who is sovereign over every storm? You see how foolish resorting first or mainly to our own intellect and creativity and ability to get out of a bind this all is? It's even more foolish in matters of salvation. Do we really think a little bit of vague religion paired with our confidence in our own goodness will save us? If God relentlessly pursues rebels and you don't think you're a rebel that is so helpless that you couldn't even go look for God if you wanted to, where will that leave you? Lost. That's where. What we need is frequent reminders that are playing at religion so that people think we're just good enough and just Christian enough and just moral enough and just a little bit better than the worst person we think we know will never do the trick in a rebellious heart. Our self-salvation projects of marginal goodness or shiny families or nice possessions and busy schedules will not do the trick. Just like every person in Jonah 1, all those attempts to save and justify ourselves will fail ultimately. We need an intervention from a pursuing God who himself finds and justifies. Nothing else will do the trick. But we must move on. We must go to our third character. Let's talk about our third character, Jonah. Jonah continues to be portrayed in the worst light possible. You think that's fair to say? The worst light possible. Not only has he run from God and hired a ship to flee from his presence, now we see him in deep sleep in the inner parts of the ship. The storm has no effect on him whatsoever. The sailors are running to and fro through the ship, and they're grabbing cargo to throw overboard, and Jonah's doing what? He's just snoozing away. The captain's question in verse 6 isn't so much one of judgment as it is astonishment. He's astounded that Jonah can sleep. So he awakes Jonah, maybe he kicks his boots or he shakes his shoulders. And you know what's funny? Notice this. This, is, uh, this just occurred to me this week. Look at the first thing the captain says to Jonah. Get up, call. You know, that sounds eerily similar to God's call on Jonah in verse 1. He says the same first couple words that God does. One commentator said Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. These were the very words which God disturbed his pleasant life with a few days before. I want you to consider this about Jonah and his deep sleep. 
Is Jonah at peace? He seems to have peace about him, doesn't he? Don't you think that's fair to say? How else can he sleep through all this? O. Palmer Robertson said this, Jonah had plenty of peace. He was sleeping like a baby. At the very time when he was running from the will of God, he had great peace. We've all heard someone say, or perhaps we've said it ourselves regarding some decision or something about our lives, we have a peace about it. You've heard this? Maybe you've said this? Or the opposite, I don't have a peace about it. We think inner peace is a correct guide to our decision making. If we're going to do something, we need peace about it. If we don't have peace about it, well, what? I'm not going to do it, right? But let me ask, is this a proper way to look at things? You know this is a setup, right? That's why you're quiet. Is this a standard that the Bible calls us to? See, Jonah has peace. I hope that's not my alarm because I'm not done, all right? Jonah has peace, and he has a peace that allows him to sleep in the worst storm in his life in the bowels of a creaking ship. Meanwhile, this man who is figuratively and literally running from God is getting the best sleep maybe he's ever had. My point, inner peace is not the goal in the Christian life or in decision-making. One can have inner peace about sin or disobedience. One could say they feel inner peace when really that's code for, I'm going to do what I want to do. I've known plenty of people who said they had inner peace about something that, and that thing was something sinful or unbiblical. <laughs> inner peace was just code for, I'm going to follow my idiot heart and fleshy desires. The peace we need is peace with Christ. And oftentimes, obedience to his commands won't feel like inner peace. Just, I just want you to think about it, okay? Think about what the Bible commands us to. Think about what Jesus calls us to do. If inner peace was the test, you would not love your enemy. You would not forgive people who hurt you. You won't evangelize. You won't call brothers and sisters to repent. We won't take up crosses. We won't die to ourselves. We won't go to Nineveh. Because we have more peace in our running from God than obedience to Him. We won't go to people who are nothing like us, or hurting, or addicted, or marginalized, or scared. Why? Because we will always have more peace in our safety and comfort in the status quo than we will in radical obedience to a commanding Christ who is attempting to reorder our hearts and our priorities and the way we see the world. The Bible doesn't say a vague notion of inner peace is necessary in order to do something. The Bible says we need the peace of Christ. And if we have peace with Christ, we'll be able to pursue obedience that isn't comfortable because we trust our commanding Lord more than our ever-changing feelings that will always choose comfort over discomfort. So Jonah is woken by the captain, and you know what else is interesting. The captain asked Jonah to pray to his God, and guess what Jonah does not do? He doesn't pray. Because as we said last week, sin and disobedience will lead you to a downward trajectory away from God, not towards him. It will drive you to less prayer, less Bible reading, less church attendance, and never more. Jonah doesn't want anything to do with God, but then ironically says when asked... We have to laugh out loud at this, that he fears the Lord. 
But his actions say something different, don't they? The sailors are afraid when they learn that Jonah is a wayward prophet. They knew from the beginning that this storm wasn't ordinary. They knew some deity has caused this, and they knew it was on the account of someone. Now, when they learned it was Jonah, they literally, what it says is, feared a great fear. And they asked Jonah, what have you done? And they know Jonah is both the guilty party and the expert because they're asking, what shall we do that the sea may become quiet for us? And Jonah says, what? Toss me overboard. And the sailors say, no, let's try. <laughs> let's try to row back to land first. And something else is interesting, right? What if Jonah said, have you ever thought about this? What if Jonah said, row back to shore, and I will tell God that I'll go to Nineveh? You know, the sea would probably stop raging. If his solution was obedience, perhaps he could have ended this. Instead, it's the sailor's idea to go back to shore because they're not trying to kill this guy, right? But the rowing fails, and they pray to Yahweh because they don't want to be guilty of murder. The last thing they want, right, is to make the God of all things who hurled this storm in the first place upset that they killed his guy. Jonah concludes that judgment has been rendered for his disobedience and that death is the just deserts for his running. But not only that, but also, Jonah, do you realize this? He hates the idea of Nineveh getting grace of God so much that he would rather die than obey. Understand, he isn't being, I know, I've heard some people picture him as like this valiant substitute to save these pagan sailors. He doesn't care about them. They're pagan idolaters like the Ninevites. But he does think he has another way out of this call. And he knows that he deserves the judgment of God. So he says, toss me overboard. But what Jonah will learn shortly is what? You can run. You can't hide. So the sailors pick this dude up and they toss him overboard and the sea ceases its raging instantly. Now, when I say instantly, I mean instantly. The Hebrew pictures the sea. You know, you probably picture the sea doing this, right? The waves raging, it pictures the sea going from this to glass, like that. That's how sovereign God is over creation. You know, there's another time when that happens in Scripture, where the sea goes from raging to glass. Now, it doesn't happen in the Mediterranean, though. It happens on the Sea of Galilee. And you know what's interesting? It happens on a boat with a bunch of professional sailors. And they're freaking out <laughs> about the severity of the storm. And their boat was also threatening to break up. And you know something else? There was also a man sent of God asleep in the midst of the storm. The men sent of God also both get woken up by panicked sailors who wonder how they could sleep. But there are some key differences. Jonah is on the boat because he is fleeing from the will of God. Jesus was on his boat because he continued to pursue the will of God. Jonah's presence on the boat was the reason for the storm. Jesus is the one who stops the storm. Jonah was on the boat in order to avoid going to the Gentiles in Nineveh. Jesus was on the boat in order to go to the other side to get to a Gentile territory. Jonah had to be delivered from death as he sunk into the ocean. Jesus was the one who delivered everyone else from death with his sovereignty over the winds and the waves. But further, Jonah is the one whose idea it was to be cast off the ship, but he wasn't bravely sacrificing himself for the sailors. He just wanted to die. He just wanted to avoid obeying God. 
But Jesus was willing to enter into the sea of a gruesome death and the wrath of God in order to save the guilty. He didn't enter the storm to avoid the will of God. He entered the storm of death and crucifixion and beatings and substitutions because that was the will of God. Does God relentlessly pursue rebels? He loves rebels and sinners so much that his pursuit took him to the point of taking on human flesh. He needed to be cast off the boat by others, as it were. He entered the storm willingly, and he did it for you. He absorbed the seas of wrath of God that we stored up through our rebellion, and he did that to get to you. Does God relentlessly pursue rebels? You've never seen a pursuit like this. Does he show mercy through judgment? The cross is the greatest example that judgment is not antithetical to mercy. For in the greatest act of mercy in human history, Jesus took on the judgment of God, though innocent. I wonder, where are you in this moment, my friend? Are you someone who is running? Are you running from God through some sin you won't let go of? Are you running from God through blatant disobedience? Are you hoping that a little bit of religion will do the trick to appease God and you're leaning on that rather than justification Jesus provides through his work and his person? Are you someone who says they fear the Lord with a healthy fear but Jesus isn't factored into your life much at all? Are you someone who uses God as the cosmic genie in the bottle rather than a loving father whom you lean on at all times? Are you someone who has a hard time believing God would want to pursue a relationship with you because you think you're too bad or because you've blown it too big? Or are you going through a storm right now? Have you stopped to wonder if God is trying to get your attention regarding something? Have you run to him or away from him? Have you asked him to deliver you, or are you trying to make your own way? Have you looked at the sailors and Jonah here this morning and thought, I'm like the sailors. I'm like Jonah. Well, there's good news, friends. No matter your situation, the answer is the one I always give to you. Look to Jesus, the greater Jonah, who proved without a shadow of a doubt that God is a God who pursues the undeserving so that they will cry out to him in desperation and will depend on his power and mercy and grace. Same God who hurls storms and turns them to glass in an instant is the same God who took on flesh to hang on a tree on Calvary's hill. He loves you, and he wants you. Stop your running because he won't stop his pursuing. You can run but you can't hide. Be ruined by these truths because the God of the storm is also a loving Savior who entered the storm so you can know him and safety is found exclusively in his mighty, saving, merciful arms.